0: Datiya Bambi said, is the Holy Spirit a different person or is it another form of God the Father? It's a distinct person. It's not another form of God the Father. Many Pentecostals believe that the Holy Spirit is just another form of the person of God. But there are a few verses in the Bible which indicate otherwise. One is when Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would be like another helper or another companion. Okay, and it looks like it's going to be around John chapter 14, verse 6, or 14, verse 16, sorry. At the top, starting in verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you. So in Jesus, calling the Holy Spirit another makes a distinction between himself and the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to call him the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him, and so on. And also there's another verse in the book of John chapter 17. And not only John chapter 17, but um, other passages and chapters of the Bible as well, where Jesus is praying to the Father. And here it says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. If Jesus and Father and the Father are the same person, why is Jesus praying to the Father? That would just be awkward. And in addition, at the baptism of Jesus Christ, remember when Jesus was getting baptized, it says that the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove, and a voice from heaven from the Father said, this is my son. And so here we have a distinction between Jesus, who was on earth, the Holy Spirit, who was between heaven and earth, and the Father, who was in heaven at the time. So they are three distinct persons. But they are one God in the sense that they are all divine and they are all united in their mission to save us. The Holy Spirit is not the Father in another form. That's a doctrine called modalism taught by Oneness Pentecostals. The Bible makes it clear there is a distinction between the person of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One event that makes that really evident is the baptism of Jesus Christ. Also, Jesus called the Holy Spirit another helper, making a distinction between himself and the Holy Spirit. Learn more about the nature of God.
1: Okay, if you're not confused yet, pull up a chair. (laughs) Let me pull up this file here. Okay, I am thinking about this. I think it is highly possible. That's why you always keep thinking, kids. Thinky, thinky. It is highly possible that the Jews, the Romans, maybe they're hiding behind this God person, right? Maybe this God person is who we're looking for. And let me try to explain... (laughs) the best I can how I got here okay so I put together this massive file of all my notes and I'm going to walk you through because there is this stuff about God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Ghost okay there's this Holy Ghost thing so today I'm going to walk you through this complete um, deal and talk about the snakes the worms, the Bible quotes that tie into all of this and why I think, thinky-thinky, it's highly possible that it's the God, the God people that are in charge of all this, right? Okay, but let me, let me not jump ahead here. Let me start to um, unwrap this for you a little bit, okay? So I've been looking into the worms and the snakes and all of this business, right? Pretty complicated stuff, as it turns out, but not all that complicated. How did the worm thing start out? Well, it was a man, a woman, and a snake, and a fateful apple. In the Old Testament book of Genesis, a serpent memorably appears in the Garden of Eden, the earthly paradise God created for the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. The cunning snake convinced Eve to eat the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge telling her that when you eat from it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil when God learned of Adam and Eve's transgression he banished both of them from Eden and cursed the snake for its role saying you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life Debate has long raged over whether the serpent in Genesis was a literal, literal reptile, an allegory for sexual desire, or temptation, or even Satan himself. And the reason that this started to get to my attention also is because there's all these laws about what you can talk about, right? And there's this law about blasphemy, B L A S P H E M Y it's defined as the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for god and or the act of claiming the attributes or claiming the attribute, attributes of a deity so you can't claim that you're godlike right that would be called blasphemy and the reason I was looking into blasphemy because in countries like Africa, I would guess, and I'm just guessing here, that under this charge of blasphemy, it would be pretty easy to push this God message, right? Because then you, if you don't accept this idea from these white saviors about God, then of course it could probably end up being your death or something like that, right? Now I'm only guessing there, okay? So the word blasphemy originated from the Greek word blasphemia, then translated from Latin to Old French to Middle English. Blasphemy is generally defined as the act or offense of speaking sacrilegiously about God or sacred things, synonymous with irreverence and disrespect of God or Christ. In English, blasphemy denotes any utterance that insults God or Christ or Allah or Muhammad and gives deeply felt offense to their followers. In several states of the United States and in Britain, blasphemy is a criminal offense, although there have been very few prosecutions in this century. And this is how these deals work. They have all these old rules on the books, right? So good luck if they bring you in on blasphemy charges. <laughs> um, and is. In Islamic countries, generally, no distinction is made between blasphemy and heresy, so that any perceived rejection of the prophet or his message by Muslims or non-Muslims is regarded as blasphemous. And then I looked in, what does blasphemy mean in the Bible? There's this place called Bakes, oh, Baker's, <laughs> Baker's Bible Dictionary. The Bible concept is very different. There is no Hebrew word equivalent to the English blasphemy, and the Greek root blasphem, which is used 55 times in the New Testament, has a wide meaning. In both Testaments, the idea of blasphemy as something that offends the religious sensibilities of others is completely absent. In the Old Testament, at least five different Hebrew verbs are translated blasphemy in English translations. However, to curse or insult God is an especially grave sin. It must be a pretty grave sin because we're all sinners to start with, right? And I'll keep going here. It can be done by word or by deed. There is little distinction between the sinner who deliberately abuses the name of the Lord or the one who deliberately flouts his commandments. For both, the death penalty is prescribed. Similarly, similarly, the prayer of Levitas calls awful blasphemies all that Israelites did when they made the golden calf. I don't know what the golden calf is. Even in the three monolithic world religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, there are fundamental differences in God's character, attributes, and especially his nature. It's always a he, right? Although all three are monotheistic. Judaism and Islam are Unitarian monothesis. That means they believe that the being of God exists as one person, monotheistic, okay? Christianity, on the other hand, is Trinitarian monotheism. And that means, I hit on that a little bit in the last show about the Islam deal. And the Christians have, they're always talking about that um, that three, right? And on the back of the $1 bill, which is actually the um, state stamp for this country, has that pyramid. Pyramids are threes, right? This is where we bring this pyramid thing in. Okay. This is the belief that within the one being that is God. This is I'm I'm describing the Christian Trinitarian monotheism. Okay, and that's the belief that with one being that is God, there exists internal, eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons named. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each is a distinct person, yet each is identified as God. Okay. So, so each of these also become identified as God. And this is where I got way confused with this Holy Spirit business. <laughs> okay, the doctrines of the Trinity especially distinguishes Christians from the world's religions. Okay. In Islam, even though it is misunderstood, the doctrine of the Trinity is considered blasphemy. So in Islam, it seems to be misunderstood, according to these people, but in Islam, they consider Christianity blasphemy, maybe because there's three people, I don't know. Okay, then I was looking at serpents. Boy, that snakes. they got snakes on their logos. That Pope sits in a snake, snake room. He sits in that room. It's called the head of the snake. You can find it. Just just do a search for Pope John or whatever his name is and snake. <laughs> he, he sits in this big room that's the head of the snake. Um, the serpent was a symbol of evil power and chaos from the underworld as well as a symbol of fertility, life, healing, and rebirth. See, there's always a dual world, right? So in the New Testament, it is both directly asserted and in various forms assumed that Satan seduced the first people, Mary, I excuse me, not Mary, I'm getting my people mixed up. Adam and Eve. They say that they say that Satan did that. Serpents are said in scripture to eat dust. D-U-S-T. These animals, which for the most part take their food on the ground, do consequently swallow with it large portions of sand and dust. Throughout the East, the serpent was used as an emblem of the evil principle of the spirit of disobedience and continuancy. So, um, in Hebrew for snake, it's associated with divination, including the verb form meaning to practice, divination, or fortune telling fortune telling i think this is a big big fairy tale with a lot of fortune telling mixed into it and then you know when i look a little deeper it also explains why i was looking at things earlier because if you remember i don't know several episodes late but it was in the title i talked about cannibalism right <laughs> i was questioning cannibalism well glad i did that show because um there's this thing about when I was looking into this this Jesus thing further. Um, Jesus uh, Jesus talks about. He said we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. So I thought that fascinating. That's how I got going on this road here because um, here we enter into cannibalism, and also one of the very first acts they did was have people drinking his blood as wine, right? Entering alcohol into the mix. You know, alcohol is also referred to as spirits. Lots of bad things happen when people drink, and there's lots of reasons for that, but I'm not going to engage in that right this second. But yeah, this whole snake thing, the spirits, all this stuff is very interesting. So Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. Okay, okay, now, um, evil in a general sense is defined as the opposite or absence of good. It can be an extremely broad concept, although in everyday usage it is often more narrowly used to talk about profound wickedness and against common good. It is generally seen as taking multiple possible forms, such as the form of personal moral evil, commonly associated with the word or impersonal natural evil, as in the case of natural disasters or illnesses. And in religious thought, the form of the demonic or supernatural eternal. While some religions, worldviews, and philosophies focus on good versus evil, others deny evil's existence and usefulness in describing people. Well, they did did a number on us with this evil business, and go look at psychopathinyourlife.com. I did a write-up on my main page on my website about how they use the word psychopath to really trick us into... Their version of what evil is, right? It really, it really limited our entire, our entire version of what evil is. I'm not gonna go there this second, so I'll rein myself back in right here. So anyway, so that's eating the flesh, drinking the blood, creepy stuff, right? Well, at least that's how it strikes me. Okay, and um, who's the most popular person? Jesus, right? And there was a point in time that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. Um, more popular than Jesus is part of a remark made by John Lennon of the Beatles. You know, the guy who supposedly is dead. I, he, he, he Either he's really dead from some sort of chemical reaction from taking hormones to tra- transgender himself, or he's alive, right? <laughs> so... Um, but anyway, John Lennon said that um, in a March 1966 interview, he argued that the public were more infatuated with the band than with Jesus and that Christian faith was declining to the extent that it might be outlasted by rock music. His opinions drew no controversy when originally published in the London newspaper, The Evening Standard, but drew angry reactions from Christian communities when published in the United States that July. Lenin's comments incited protests and threats, particularly through the Bible Belt in the Southern United States. Some radio stations stopped playing Beatles songs, records were publicly burned, press conferences were canceled, and the Ku Klux Klan picketed concerts. The controversial co- controversy coincided with the band's 1966 U.S. tour and overshadowed press conference of their newest album, Revolver. So um, the controversy exasperated the band's unhappiness with touring, which they never undertook again. Well, yeah, probably because they were lousy people that were cooked up at Tavistock, right? <laughs> Probably a wise move. I I never saw the Beatles in concert. Saw everybody else, but not them. So anyway, so yeah. More proper than Jesus were the Beatles, okay. Because I started thinking that Jesus, you know, we have all these influencers now, right? People just don't seem to really catch what's going on because, uh, see, let me guess here. We went from radio to movies to television. Hmm, hmm, hmm. What do we have next? Then we have the internet. Then we have reality TV. Huh, what do we have next? People in their jeans sitting on their, in front of their computers with microphones expounding knowledge about things, which God knows where are they getting this knowledge from. But anyway, those are called social influencers. And I started thinking, was Jesus an early social influencer? Because who's had more power over us? Has it been the Romans? Has it been the Jews? <laughs> no, I think it's Jesus. So anyway, so Jesus... Jesus started already getting into my brain as far as who is more popular than anybody. I mean, Jesus really does take the cake, right? Jesus is permanently world famous. Most of the world is religious, but with one faith figure. But they say that he has over half the world's attention. The Abraham... Abrahamic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam make up 54% of the world's population, and a common thread of all three is Jesus. Now, I would have to also say, because I was never part of this group of people that study these religions and stuff, but I also thought that Jesus and God were true, right? I thought it it seemed like it could have had a lot of flaws in the story, right? (laughs) But from the surface... Because of so many people engaged in the Bible and going to church and all this stuff. Of course, I had this distinct impression that this stuff was true, right? This is why you always keep looking. Because what did they do? Did they set up Romans around the country to set up all these churches and stuff when they founded this country? No. They put in pastors and churches that followed Jesus, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, so. Somebody wrote a piece actually that said, "Was Jesus an influencer?" And uh, it said, "Without beating around the proverbial or biblical bush, Jesus was an influencer." Think about it. He used his platform um, to influence others. Hell, he even had a following. He taught that we should love thy neighbor. He stated, "Thou should not kill." So, yeah, I think all all influencers are likely. Founded by Jesus, right? Among the influences that shaped Western civilization, there's probably no story more significant than the Jesus story. Even for religious skeptics, the historical influence of Jesus of Nazareth is the result of arguably the most influential life ever lived. So whether we, at one point, believe this or not, it, I would say the vast majority of the entire world, we believe that there, this thing pro- probably or could have happened, right? Jesus was raised in humble Jewish surroundings in Roman-controlled Judea and Galilee. He never traveled more than 200 miles from his birthplace. He had a small group of simple followers, and he was killed for violating the religious laws of his own people. He never received political power, he never raised an army, and he never conquered territory. By historical standards, Jesus didn't cut it as an influential figure because he didn't have the politics, the military power, any of that. So what is with the powerful influence today? Setting aside religious assumptions, what do his story historians really know about the Jesus story? Jesus was born in Bethlehem about two thousand years ago. For his first thirty years or so, he lived a traditional Jewish life in Nazareth, working with his father as a tradesman. During this period all of Israel was under Roman control. When Jesus was about 30 years old, he started his public ministry around the Sea of Galilee. And I, I watched this um, three-hour Jesus thing. I'm just doing a summary of that, okay? <laughs> just, actually, you know, I was quite mesmerized, okay? It, it's just a fantastic story, okay? <laughs> so, okay, so... Um, he was known for powerful teaching and a series of recorded miracles. Over the next three plus years, his reputation spread throughout the region, although he tried to keep a low profile. The Roman rulers of the Jewish provinces and the religious leaders of the Jewish people kept an eye on him. But why? It seemed his main teachings in public were... God loves us, love each other, people have unique value, the kingdom of God has come to earth, God will judge us in the end, God forgives those who ask. For some reason, Jesus became more and more of a perceived threat to the organized religion of the day. As a result, the Jewish leaders asked the Roman leaders, who were in control at the time to execute him. So the Jewish leaders wanted the Romans to execute Jesus, okay? There were official trials, but the Romans determined that Jesus was innocent of any crime against Rome. The religious leaders persisted with political arguments and ultimately persuaded Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the area, to approve the execution. Jesus was mocked, mocked, tortured, and hung on a wooden cross just outside Jerusalem. His simple his simple followers scattered. Three hours later, he was dead. It would seem that the historical account of Jesus, this is how it appears to me, okay, and any long-lasting historical influence would end with his death, but it didn't. We know that something happened. Something caused his scattered followers to reconnect and re-engage and spread the word about Jesus again. (laughs) Within a couple of months, there were thousands in and around Jerusalem that became his disciples. Now, let me get this straight here. Um, He was dead at this point, right? Um, Yeah, okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Within a couple of centuries, there were hundreds of thousands in the Mediterranean region who called themselves Christians. Yeah, I don't remember, um, but remember they they had the early temples, the Romans did, that became the Christian places. I'm a little bit confused here, but just stick with me here for a minute. So the early called themselves Christians. Those were the followers of Jesus Christ and... uh, in 325 A.D., Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Emperor Constantine. Okay, this is on track here. Within 500 years, Greek temples to pagan gods were being converted to Christian churches all over the Roman world. Okay, we've already talked about all this stuff. Okay, okay, so... Um, they did this analysis, okay, and um, this person... Um, said that they concluded that Jesus Christ was the world's most influential person. In an interview, this person, Skinnick, said, "We would call Jesus the most significant person ever. We measure meme strength, how successful in the idea of this person. Oh, excuse me, meme strength. In other words, how often we joke about this person. There are a lot of really good." Um, jesus memes by the way actually if you want some good jesus memes just type in um well just type in whatever foul words you want to say put jesus on it and put gif g-i-f at the end have some fun okay so um so what they did was they did this all this ranking using google and wikipedia and all that to figure out how jesus ranks and um so here they came up with this top 10 list, and this top 10 list I found in a lot of places okay. Who are the top 10 people in the last couple thousand years? Jesus is number one. Napoleon, William Shakespeare, Mohammed, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Adolf Hitler, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, and Thomas Jefferson is number 10. There's no women in the top ten. Well, actually, these are all women. (laughs) Let me clarify the point here. (laughs) They say that uh, the first woman to show up was Queen Elizabeth I, who came in at 12th, beating out Julius Caesar at 13. So, yeah, the first list, the top ten, are all women hiding as men, right? Okay. Okay. Okay, so yeah, Adolf Hitler is still in the list at number seven. Okay, um, from a Christian perspective, other significant people included Martin Luther, Apostle Paul, King David, Apostle Peter, Emperor Constantine. He was the Roman emperor who legalized Christianity, Emperor Constantine, and John Calvin. I forget who they are... Um, So then I was also looking at the top Bible quotes from Jesus. When Jesus spoke, lives were transformed and the trajectory of life forever altered. He tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And his words have remarkable power. Whether you are just beginning to seek Jesus or have been a believer for years, the word of God can always speak new truths into your life famous quotes of jesus jesus answered i am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well in the same way let your light shine before others they may never see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven ask that it will be given to you seek and you will find knock on the door will be opened to you for everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who, who knocks, the door will be open. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Well, Okay. Okay, now let's get to the punishing part of this Bible deal, okay? Because in the past, I don't remember, last show or two, (laughs) I've been talking about how I feel like the Bible has really become their history book for um, pointing to things in the past, to talk about famine. So I wanted to give you some specific examples here, okay? The Bible's association of famine and other natural... See, remember, too, they call them natural disasters. Well, they're not natural disasters, okay? Um, They're created by these people. So, the Bible's association of famine and other natural disasters with divine anger and punishment paved the way for faith leaders throughout the ages to use their pulpits to cast blame on those they found morally wanting. Preachers during the Dust Bowl of 1920s and 30s, America held alcohol and immorality responsible for provoking God's anger. God really has a pretty trigger, trigger-happy trigger anger. Um, but that, that's just my opinion. Let me keep moving here. Okay. And so I just pulled up some bunches of stuff about famine. In the book of Samuel, we read that Israel endured a three-year famine in the time of David, considered Israel's greatest king. When David inquires as to the cause of the famine, he is told that it is due to the sins of his predecessor and mortal enemy, Saul. The story illustrates how biblical authors, like modern moral crusaders, used the opportunity of famine to demonize their opponents. Well, they're doing that now. They're saying, oh, well, you know, the left is doing this. The right's doing that. And hey, we're all going to go hungry, right? Okay, so. Um, for the biblical writers interested in legislating and prophesizing about Israel's behavior, famine was both an ending. The, it was a result of disobedience and sin, and also a beginning. A potential turning point toward a better and more faithful future. Other biblical authors focus less on how or why famines happen and more on the opportunities that famines provided for telling new stories. Famine as a narrative device rather than a theological tool is found regularly throughout the Bible. The writers of the Hebrew Bible use famine as a motivating factor for major changes in the lives of its characters, undoubtedly reflecting the reality of famine's impact on the ancient world. And in the book of Genesis, they talked about famine drives the biblical character of Abraham to Egypt, Isaac to the land of the Philistines, and Jacob and his entire family to Egypt. And they you know, remember we had the, um, probably a true but triggered event, the Irish potato famine. They use these famines and things to relocate people, right? Okay, and there's just more than I want to say about famine here because um, you go on forever. So let me get back to this um, snake business. Okay, um... Yeah, oh, this is an interesting quote I had first here about um, Israel, because they, they focus their life around that Israel deal, right? So they talked about, in Israel, it is understood that famine or plague or war was common enough that anyone might be forced to leave their land or seek refuge in another. Yeah, well, it's all about displacing people, right? They use the gold rush to displace people. They use this to displace that. It is one very cheap way to move mass groups of people, right? So anyway, so then let me get to this um, patch here about the... Uh, I've got a million Bible quotes, but I'm not going to drag you through them all. I'm pretty bored with most of them at this point, so okay the great da- the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or satan who leads the world astray he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him the great dragon have you noticed all of these um dragon dragons on these logos these people use dragons are real big on their logos and their flags and There's a thing in Revelations, He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So yeah, there's a lot of, um, they make their tongues as sharp as serp- serpents. The poison of vipers is on their lips. So there is, you could go for days looking at Bible quotes. Just do a search for Bible quotes Bible, Bible quotes about serpents. Okay. The, the wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on any holy mountain, says the Lord. I don't know what they're talking about here half the time. Um, so, um, let me scroll down here. Yeah, you, you can just go insane with um, Bible talks about serpents. And that's what makes it interesting because, um, I'm going to scroll down here because actually serpents mean, um, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Well, I think that they've done a good job of, um, getting people to not like snakes. Um, okay, so, um, so, yeah, so right here in the beginning of the, of their whole story here with the Bible, it starts off with, um. I I asked this question, what does the Bible say about man being a worm? Because they talked about us being worms and all this other stuff. And um, the answer was, first he said, man is rottenness. See, they're always talking about we're rotten, we're evil, all this stuff. And afterwards, the son of man is a worm. Because a worm springs from rottenness, therefore man is rottenness. And the son of man, and the son of man, a worm. So, um, I don't know. Okay, um, there was this ancient, um, the worm, because I'm back to, in case you've blanked out by now, the worm was the thing sitting on Jimmy Carter's desk, these worms, okay. But there's strong feelings that the worms actually mean Serpents, okay. Everything has a million different meanings, right? Uh, and that's where how they can rule us by chaos because it's they can have a different explanation for everything. So, the worm is one of the most ancient and strongest creatures on earth, um, and also the worm, uh, anyway. So, yeah, so, um. I looked at representations of worms. Um, Charles Darwin, who they say is a modern evolution theory person who really... Anyway, we didn't come from apes and all this stuff, but he had studied worms for 39 years and concluded, it may be doubted whether there are many other animals which have played so important a part in the history of the world as these lowly creatures... The Greek philosopher and scientist Aristotle had said that the first men came out of the earth in the form of worms, and the ancient Greek philosopher spoke of a certain worm which take the human figure. The symbolic worship of the serpent has widespread among the primitive nations of the earth. Okay, This is a sign of a true genius. I uh, forget to plug in my laptop and then the power goes out and then, whoops, lost the file. I'm gonna try to pick up where I left off. (laughs) This is gonna be a fun day. Okay, I uh, wanna talk about a couple things with worms before I close off this show. So, um, there is this thing about these serpents on crosses and um, there is a worm that showed up on the cross and it was, would be symbolized by Jesus on a cross who said, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by everyone, despised by the people. And that would be Psalm 22, 6. So yes, yeah, this worm. And one of the about the worm, um, and I already talked, I think, about the rottenness stuff before I uh, got cut off. King Solomon had used a mighty little worm to help him build Solomon's temple. In Hebrew tradition, as written in the Torah, we find that ten things were created on the eve of the Sabbath, and among them, which is the shamir, S-H-A-M-I-R. This story relates to how Solomon sent his general armed with his signet ring of Solomon to the king of demons Asmodeus, with orders to bring unto him Shamir the worm. The Shamir was the most excellent servant, or should we say serpent, which we now know is a little worm, which had helped Solomon with the stones of the temple. There was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron. Heard in the house while it was building, because it was the worm. So um, these Freemasons of Britain and Ireland wrote, "The mightiest and most haughty princes of the earth are but as worms, and not as much as we are all sons of the same one eternal Father." Lots of this worm business. Um, It is from the servants of the temple where we obtain the wisdom of the serpent, which we now know is really a worm, which was used for the construction. Um, There was also a worm in that apple that Adam and Eve were eating also. Wasn't that a worm? Um, So, yeah, um, I think that there is a lot with this symbolism. Um, they used the snake serpent on the Egyptian pharaoh's headdresses. They used serpents in the forms of a cobra. They also used the serpents embroidered on the robes of princesses, princes to signify their race and rule of alchemy in which the world inflicted, which, in which the wound inflicted by serpent worm was incurable. Yeah, I don't know. Um, This worm stuff, and is this all a, um, they went on to say the devil is a worm. The devil and the beast of Revelation is called the serpent or viper in the scriptures. And worm was constantly used for serpent by many of the ancient Italian writers. Well, I think that it looks to me, now, I don't know, I'm still hopefully engaging my brain. (laughs) It is starting to look to me in the scope of things, okay? Let's say I was to just make some wild guess here, okay? It looks to me like the God and Jesus and Holy Spirit business is far more powerful than the Romans and the um, Jews, right? It appears to me, and I also have a tremendous amount of thinking to do from this point on, but it appears to me that what we're looking at is, is the proverbial head of the snake the actual Bible crowd? Is that who we're really looking at? They seem to have more presence, more prominence, more ability to control and possibly cook up this whole staged deal we're living in. Um, I don't know. I don't know. We have to really use our heads from this point. So I will... um, I will be thinking a lot more about this because it just occurs to me that possibly always keep looking, right? Is it really the Romans? Eh, I don't know. For me right now, the jury is out. But that's why we all were given our own individual brains. (laughs) Thinky, thinky. Goodbye for now. Be safe out there.